0: Raising the Bets is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com/slash give. You're listening to Raising the Bets. We're a Catholic couple raising five kids outside of Boston. Join us as we share the joys and challenges of marriage, homeschool, and our adventures near and far as we make sense of the world and experience the best parts of our culture. I'm Don Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. So, Melanie, it is spring here in the Northern Hemisphere, and thus uh, we apparently both got the
1: bug to do some spring cleaning this weekend. I, uh, I think that's also partly because uh, <laughs> it was the first weekend in a while when we haven't had something stuff. to do stuff to do. Yeah, right. I've for the so back up.
0: Start at the beginning. Okay. Our, our house has a forced hot air air conditioning system. You know, forced air, cold and hot air, whatever. Which means it's dusty. We have a dusty house.
1: I'm not sure that all forced hot air houses are dusty though. Like
0: I know, they're not. Our house is particularly <laughs> like you could a week will go by and I'm like I could not even a week and i can drag my finger through the dust on my computer monitors and stuff it's just for some reason well, this computer house
1: is dust especially like work. i know electrostatic
0: static, blah, blah, yeah. blah. the shelf the bookshelves behind me will have a layer of dust like it's just i don't know maybe maybe that's the thing maybe you are just supposed to dust more
1: people are supposed to dust yeah
0: i guess we have a lot to dust that's a lot of dusting anyway uh when i was a kid my parents used to give me
1: a cloth and painting a quarter to dust oh i used to have to polish the wood furniture oh that too yeah lemon pledge oh yeah lemon pledge with old cloth diapers
0: what was well, we didn't have cloth diapers no but what was the point of that <laughs> well, no. did, did the did furniture need to be polished more like old furniture like i mean i, I look at our anything wooden in this house has been dinged and Banged and scratched to heck anyway. Plus
1: plus a lot of what we have is not actual solid wood. It's right. laminate.
0: That's true. Your parents have some really nice wood Mexican furniture. Yeah. Like hand, they bought hand, in Mexico hand carved.
1: Yeah. Heavy, heavy.
0: That's man. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. That is far afield from where I was going. <laughs> it's gonna go it's gonna be another one of those shows. One of those. Buckle up. So there's this corner in my office kind of between my desk and the TV and I have like a little shelf next to me that holds the home theater stuff and the mixer for the recording and all that sort of stuff. It's all kind of here behind it is the wire nest. Just, there was all kinds of cables and things like there. And it was basically inaccessible and I hadn't pulled everything out in years. Like it's been a long time since that was all pulled out and unplugged. And I'm, I will Here's me being authentic, folks. It was disgusting. It was so thick with dust.
1: Honestly, I've looked over in that corner a few times and thought, that really needs to be cleaned. And then I don't have time to do that and vacuumed the middle of the room and left it. I wouldn't want you to do it because of all the wires. Exactly. Like, I I know better than to touch your wire stuff. So I have not been the one... (laughs) It's not my problem, not my
0: circus, not my monkeys. Yeah. And thank you for not nagging me about it. But it was I thought it was getting to the point of danger where it, it it could overheat things. It could spark. It could explode, go fire inferno. So I I had I had to plug in something new yesterday is basically what it was. And as I was pulling things apart to get in there, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And so that was it. I took everything apart, took all the stuff out of there, unplugged everything, carried each component outdoors. Oh my gosh, folks! The AV receiver. When I blew the compressed air through the the uh, vent, like back back, blew so much dust came out. It was crazy. So I got it all dusted, all clean, vacuumed. There was a like a a layer of dust on the floor that was oh, on the carpet. Oh. All up, all clean. It looks awesome back there. And in fact, I found a number of cables and wires that went nowhere. Like, why is this this doesn't connect anything. Why is this here? Did they reproduce or whatever? it was more likely is I disconnected some component and didn't bother to snake out the wire that was connecting. It was a mess. So, it needed to be done and it got done, and I'm very pleased with that. You also did some cleaning? Done. Uh, some normal cleaning.
1: Um yeah, our room hadn't been vacuumed in a while and I picked up everything off the floor and vacuumed both sides of the bed and took out the trash and tidied up my table beside my bed, which was kind of a trash heap.
0: There, there, there in every couple, there's one uh, spouse whose bedside table is neat, has few things on it. And then there's the other one whose bedside table is covered
1: Yeah, I would like to point out that that's because all of the stuff that's on my bedside table, you store in the office. Like the, you know, the stuff that comes out of your pocket at the end of the day and, Uh and, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Glasses, cleaning. That is the equivalent
0: of your office.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: actually, our bedroom is your office. We need a desk in there, really.
1: Yeah, I don't have room for a desk in there. But I I need it. I want one of those cool fold down desks that like, like a Murphy desk, you know, goes up against the wall and then it folds folds down. down.
0: And never folds back up ever again once you folded it down because
1: it's stuff on it.
0: <laughs> but I get it. I get it. Um, can you believe it's been a year and a half since we moved back in? No. That's wild. Anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. So spring cleaning got started. I mean, it was a drop in the bucket. There's so much <laughs> needs to be done. It's a constant battle. You folks know that. It's I mean, we don't even have that big of a house. The other springy thing that's been going on, I got up yesterday morning and I was in the office, uh, I'll bring my rosary or whatever. And the kids come running in, uh, Sophie and Ben come quick, come quick. Look out the back door. There's a, there's a cat in the backyard, which neighborhood cat. It happens. We've had cats, but there was the, a mama bunny was sitting on our back step, staring at the cat, which was out by the playhouse or the uh-huh. play set. And the cat pounces and baby bunnies scatter, <laughs> and that's when Sophie slams the door open and goes, "Get out of here!" To the cat, the cat, boom, over the fence. Um, I mean, in general, it's not the end of the world if some baby bunnies get eaten. I mean, they they need to get eaten. If they don't get, if the, if the bunny population is not controlled, we will be overrun by bunnies. Uh, but I. But I prefer like hawks and owls to eat them and coyotes over the cats that just like kill them and then leave them. Uh The cats don't eat them. So um, bunnies and cats. Uh, Actually, at least this time, the rabbit uh, laid its nest, created its nest like out of the way and not in the middle (laughs) of the lawn where I would be mowing. That would be bad if that ever happened. Uh, again, I, I, luckily we discovered. Oh, that was a couple of years ago. We discovered the nest in the middle of the yard before I did the first mow uh, of the of the grass for the year. Ugh. anyway, so that's what's been kind of going on. Also, the, we were going to be talking about a uh, Cub Scout ice cream social. That was supposed to be tonight, except I got the day wrong and sent the family off to go to an ice cream social. We
1: drove all the way out there and there was not a single car in the parking lot. And I was like, "Okay, we're five minutes late and there's no one here at all. Not even the people who are supposed to be setting up.
0: So I go back. Well, no, I know it's supposed to be at St. Michael's. That's what it says in the note right here. April 30th. Four
1: o'clock.
0: <laughs> oh, wait, what's today's date? Oh, that's next and Sunday. Lucy,
1: and then Lucy pipes up. Yeah, I thought it was kind of too soon. And I thought it was next weekend. But oh, of course. Thanks, Lucy. She said she told you. <laughs> she did not. She said she asked you, are you sure it's this weekend? Well, I of course I was sure. I looked
0: at the thing. <laughs> anyway, so that would have been something else to talk about. All right, let's move into. We got a lot to talk about. So let's move into. Uh, the next thing we'll talk about, which is food. And I want to approach a different, we, we have a recipe I want to talk about, but I want to talk about a little more generally about food and how we go about food shopping
1: and meal planning. Basically, in the last few years, I have cleverly shuffled most of those. On to me. onto you. Yes. Yeah. So redivision of
0: labor. <laughs> sometime during the pandemic, I started doing the weekly food shopping
1: mostly it's well it started because i had a hernia that needed that needed an operation
0: right and you couldn't pick anything up and just going to stores pushing the
1: shopping cart was really hard for me like physical and then i had surgery finally to fix the hernia and then i needed several months really to recover from the surgery before i really felt up to pushing shopping carts again and by that time you were entrenched
0: i was entrenched i had a method i had a time i had a way i had the things I, i wanted to get i knew that yeah. And
1: I had gotten used to not like giving <laughs> over control, which was hard. Yes. Giving over control.
0: It is because I want the control of the grocery
1: shopping now. Right.
0: Um, and you used to like when I go, everything that's on the list that's in the store, I buy. Even if I've gone by it, I go back for it. You don't. If you've because- passed it by and you notice it, that thing is lost and good it next <laughs> week
1: right crazy. crazy. partly because well like see shopping with five kids plus hernia well yes
0: well you weren't taking five kids by then but yes having to walk back i actually i don't often walk back i send a child right
1: if if i could send a child i would but there are a lot of things that like sending a child for just doesn't work
0: nowadays it works so i always go on fridays uh because that's With my work schedule, that's the best time to go. I can get an hour in the the middle of the day Friday and go. And I take Sophie and I take Lucy pretty generally. Almost always now.
1: You see, I, I kind of don't like this plan because it means that I can't use Friday as a uh, let's take a field trip because we've had a good week
0: well, sort of day. We did last time last week, but, we, but that, we, we now, shifted the shopping to Thursday, we,
1: but that requires premeditated you shifting around your schedule to shift the whole week as opposed to when I was doing the shopping, I could just like spontaneously do it without any reference to your schedule. Sure.
0: So, yes, that so is. So is,
1: There is a cost. Yes. A, an opportunity cost. Right.
0: So, uh, so I usually go Fridays. One of the things one of the reasons I like Fridays is that's when the new sale starts, the new sales circular for the store. Uh, So that's that where you're getting the beginning of whatever's on sale. Uh, And if you want to buy fish for Friday, it's best to buy it on Friday. Well, this is true. So I really like that. I mean, the, in the past, we've done like, well, we're doing fish Thursdays. <laughs> Right. I prefer to do it, the, you know, the Friday if we're going to get fish. And the, it's, it's, so that works out in general. All right. So we keep our shopping list in an app called AnyList. We've tried a bunch. We actually had a different one before. Yeah. My gross, I don't know, it doesn't matter because it, it stopped working. Um, And then we ended up settling on AnyList, which is pretty good. The big thing is it lets us share the list and it auto-categorizes mostly. Like if you say if you put catch up on the list, it categorizes it in condiments and dressings. And so I find that useful. You can set up multiple lists. And so I have a list for um, Home Depot and a list for other stores, the spices list, because I buy spices online, that sort of thing. So the liquor store list, that's a big one. It's an important one. Right. And um but the grocery list is the main one that we use all the time. And so it's, we use any list and that, that keeps it. the You could do meal planning and recipe organizing in any list, but I, I prefer paprika for that. That's the, uh, our recipe app. All right. So we every Thursday at dinner, since we're going shopping the next day, is when we do the planning for next week's menus. So fr- we, we, pl- we
1: plan Friday to Thursday. Right. And the reason we do it at dinner is so that all the kids can input their right. preferences. What does
0: everybody want for pick a dinner this week?
1: What works best when the kids are cooperating yes. is if everybody contributes one item, seven people, seven days a week, everybody gets a favorite meal. Now, in reality, oftentimes at least one or two or more of the kids are like, I don't care, I can't think of anything, or Which they want fine. something that somebody else said, so it doesn't actually work out sort of the ideal where everybody gets a night and picks a meal, but that's kind of again, yeah that yeah. but that's
0: fine that that'll that'll work fine so um and then I always try to put in one new recipe. Like I like to make something new. So I I look for and I keep a list in paprika, a categorized list of recipes that I've picked that are in the category of hash uh, or asterisk to try asterisk because it sorts it to the top to try. And so I'm always looking to see, well, what 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 can we try this week? And and then once I know what we're having for dinner, then I go through and see what we need for, you know, put on the shopping list for all those things. And we we only started doing this within the past year.
1: Right. And for that, it I would go through bouts, like periods, seasons, I guess you could say, yep. of making meal plans and shopping lists. And then there were just lots of times when I would just buy ingredients and then wing it with maybe one or two ideas of what I wanted to make.
0: Yeah. And that resulted in a lot of days at 4.30 going, what are we having for dinner and staring into the freezer? And panicking. And panicking. and And that put all the burden on you because... I'm working still at four thirty, right? And you know, and and you're having to figure out. Then you're coming in. What should we have for dinner? And and all this stuff. And sometimes I made dinner late, later than we wanted it to be. And sometimes it ended up in ordering pizza because neither one of us felt like dealing with making a decision more often than uh, I'd like. So, uh, since we started doing this, I'm doing more cooking, more dinners regularly. Since once since we can plan. I can say I'm going to make that, and I'll make that, and you'll make this and make that, and it's much better that way. Um, so, uh, so let's talk about what we spend. <laughs> I was really worried that well, we are spending a lot of money. <laughs> uh, we are we're a family of seven. I was spending. I was worried we were spending
1: way more than the average family because I had no idea. And then I saw uh, yeah, because yeah, you unlike me have not been parts of like a, I've been I, part of a this same conversation dozens of times.
0: Yeah, well, you're in you're Facebook or, you know, social media mom, Catholic mom groups. Catholic
1: mom groups, yeah. Yeah,
0: I don't have a Catholic mom group I can go to and say how much you spend on your groceries. <laughs> right. So what I, I did, I Googled. I said, how much does a family spend? And I I came across the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has a website, USDA Food Plans Cost of Food Reports. They create a monthly set of reports that show that tell you what uh, an average food plan is, a f- food cost is for average families at four levels, thrifty, low cost, moderate cost, and liberal. So liberal as in e- expensive, not yeah. <laughs> ideological. We're only eating plant-based vegan. <laughs> no, <laughs> Yeah. So um, the, the, they have it two ways. One, it's family of four, which we're not. Um, but then they give you modifiers to say, well, if you have a family of, if you're just one person, subtract so much percentage. If you're a family of, or add so much percentage, if you're a family of seven or more, actually they tell you to subtract 10% off of the family of four because of economies of scale. which so I thought that was interesting. But the more accurate one is they go by, uh, individual person in the family, age, group and sex. So let me just and they do this monthly. So it's a way for them to, to track inflation. But here Let me just explain. So for their um, oh, oh, I'm going to put the link in the show notes. But keep in mind, they've the, the government surprise has mixed up their links for the thrifty food plan versus the low, moderate liberal food plans. So when you click on it, just Look and you, you'll make sure you're on the right one for your your uh, interest. So I wanted to know where do we fall. We spend between lately four hundred to four hundred and fifty dollars a week on groceries, which is a lot more than we were uh, about three, two three years ago when I first started doing this. We were in the three hundred to three fifty range, I think.
1: Um, when I first started. When I first started, when When you first started grocery shopping. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably about right.
0: Yeah. And it wasn't long ago we were in the 250 range. And given kids have grown up, we have teenagers. They were little before. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They're eating a lot more now. Right. So
0: the USDA chart for a family of seven or more, just like their generic chart, says under the liberal spending plan, so at the highest level, they say 350 per week. That's a lot less than what we're spending. It's about sixty bucks less. However, when you look at the chart, so you can look at uh children nine to eleven under the moderate cost plan, it they you they are you spend in seventy five dollars and sixty cents per week for that. For that child, for a male twelve to thirteen, it's eighty four dollars and ninety cents. For a female fourteen to eighteen, it's sixty nine twenty. For a male fifty one to seventy, it's eighty seventy. For a female nineteen to fifty, it's seventy two thirty. So you just—I did all that math, and it actually comes out a lot lower than their more generic uh, ballpark figure. Lower or higher? Lower. So we're actually. So in other words, um. Oh, higher. Sorry, higher. I, it was Yeah, you confuse me here. Right. So we end up falling, instead of being way much more than the Liberal plan, we actually fall in between the low-cost and moderate-cost plan. Now, obviously, some of this is going to vary based on where you live and right, what grocery we,
1: stores you use. Because we live one of the in highest. New England, which is one of the higher cost-of-living yeah. places in the country. Right, exactly. So... Um, I felt good after that. <laughs> I mean, I don't
0: feel good that we're spending 400 to $450 a week on groceries, but we, I feel good that we are not spending way out of the, what's expected for our, our family, that we're being fairly thrifty. You know, we're not skimping, but we're, we're being fairly thrifty. We're not splurging. We're not splurging. And we're not splurging. Like we're not spending ungodly amounts of money, so uh, I'm, I'll put the links in the show notes. You can take a look at it, and you can see what it is for your family. I'd love to hear from other people. What do you you know? If you feel comfortable, what are you spending a week for? How much do you spend? You know, uh, do you feel like you fall on the higher end or the lower end of the government's accounting for how people spend money and that that sort of stuff on food? So that's uh, so that's how we go then. Um the one other thing I want to talk about in food was just a new recipe I made because it was so good. It was a Moroccan chicken skewers. And it's very simple recipe. So you basically take um boneless, skinless chicken thighs. I actually use boneless uh skinless chicken breast for this. Chicken thighs might work a little better. They they won't dry out as much, but you I I I think they weren't too the ones I made weren't too dry. You um you take Lemons, grate the zest off of it and then juice them. And you add that to a bowl along with uh, four tablespoons of honey. Sorry, the the amounts are going to vary. This is based on the double recipe I did. But honey, freshly grated ginger, cumin, and ground coriander. And salt and pepper, obviously. And you coat that on the... Chicken that's been cut up into skewer-sized chunks, and then you put them on the skewer. And then the the recipe f- the, from uh, Milk Street has you is for the oven. I did it on the grill, and I did it over indirect heat. Did, did they charcoal. do it on
1: skewers in the oven? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I wouldn't bother with skewers if I was shoving it in the oven. I just put it on a tray. I think it's pre-
0: a presentation thing,
1: right? Yeah, purdy. I'm I'm not about presentation, right? I'm lazy.
0: It also has you broil some halved lemons or put char them on the grill uh, for, for sprinkling on at the table, which
1: we did a little of that, but it was OK. It wasn't great. Did so you did sure. you increase the amount of lemon from the recipe or was that how much lemon the recipe actually called for? So I actually. Because it was super lemony even without having the extra lemons based on it. So I
0: used the same amount of lemons. I just allocated
1: differently. So in the original recipe,
0: they have uh, three lemons for one and a half pounds of chicken. Okay. And one of those lemons was zested and juiced and two of them were grilled. Right. So halved and grilled. I zested the, I switched it. So I did two to one, two lemons zested and juiced one lemon on the grill, except I doubled it. So it was four lemons. zested. So you and did juiced.
1: more zest and juice and less on the grill. Yes. That's what I was trying to figure out.
0: Yes. So, uh, and I think that actually worked out really good. That that was, I think, I think more, I, I, have, I always, we, we're both in agreement with this. Almost always. any of these recipes that call for lemon could always use more lemon.
1: We're, yeah, we love lemon and yeah. we put lots of it on.
0: I don't think it unbalanced it at all. Um, so it was really good. The, the honey um, provided some caramelization. And helped the spices and lemon adhere to the chicken, so it didn't just slide off in the over the fire, so that was good. Um, we discussed that one of the things that would have been nice is a nice tzatziki sauce. would have gone good with that. and right. uh, we served it with rice, and um yeah, it was good. um Coriander is a particularly Moroccan spice. I think that's where it comes where one of the places it grows is oh, rock really? Moroccan coriander. Yeah. Hmm. But it's a very simple recipe and um, really easy to do. And I recommend it. They came out really all the kids liked it, I think. All right. So that's, so uh, that's what we've been eating. Let's talk about what we've been reading and watching. So I watched the movie, the Batman finally, this is the Robert Pattinson Batman as opposed to all the other Batman movies. <laughs>
1: I feel like I've never heard of it, but
0: yeah, well, that's the it kind of flew under the radar a bit. It came out last year and it was a bit of a hit. It's interesting. I wasn't sure about Robert Pattinson. In fact, as Bruce Wayne, I found him to be less believable because he looks like Robert Pattinson.
1: <laughs>
0: I don't know who Robert Pattinson is. Um, sparkly Vampires. Um, what was that called? Twilight. Twilight never saw it yeah i never saw it either but he was like the lead in that he's okay. kind of looks emo-ish it's very emo-ish as, as bruce wayne in this but as batman he seems you know int- intimidating and buff that I means the suit obviously uh what made this interesting is it was less comic booky than other movie batman movies have okay. been a movie bat, other batman movies have been I repeat myself. Uh it, how do I put my It was more action movie. So there was less like it was less gimmicky, less like like the 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 riddler and the penguin were not like these guys. Like the penguin did not look like a penguin and hang out with penguins in an abandoned aquarium. Like, like the Danny DeVito penguin. Exa- exactly. Like it wasn't over-the-top, cartoonish, campy okay uh villain you know superhero so, so villain more stories. more realistic more gritty and realistic it, it, except is that batman's wearing a mask that looks like a Batman, well he's right? a dude wearing a mask and it kind of stands out a bit like why is this dude and the cops are all like what's with the weirdo you know i mean it was if a guy walked around wearing a mask and he was you know he had a few gadgets but it wasn't like over the top like the um Christian Bale Batman like all the gadgets and the super there was he had a batmobile he had a, like a souped up car but it wasn't like a space age vehicle that looked like a bat sort of thing right um so it was interesting from that perspective it was long it was over 3 it was 3 hours i think it
1: was that's really long really
0: long didn't need to be 3 hours frankly uh i i petered out the first but with 40 minutes left with the the first night I watched it and then came back to it a couple nights later and tr- forced myself to finish. I mean, it wasn't, that was bad. I was just tired <laughs> and, I, and I had to finish. Um, at the 40 minute to go mark, it felt like an ending, it, but it wasn't over. So um, interesting. It was good in a way. I think it was a little more s- cerebral, if you can call a superhero movie that. It, there was a lot of action, a lot of people getting beat up and that sort of thing. But there was a little, it was a lot more internal to it. Uh-huh. I want to watch some of the behind-the-scenes features. I ended up buying it because it was like $8 to buy and $4 to rent. And at three hours, I knew I wasn't going to watch it in one night or in the, the allotted time period. So I, I so you like,
1: would end up renting it twice or yeah, buying it. So
0: I might as well buy it. Um, so... Uh, but that means it came with all the extras, so I'm kind of interested in, in watching some of those extras. Uh, they had Catwoman, Selena Kyle, except she was never called Catwoman. She was just Selena Kyle, who was a cat burglar, who had those sorts of skills and owned a bunch of cats, but not like she wasn't like a crazy person like um, the Halle Berry Catwoman or the uh, what's her name, huh? Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer, Catwoman. Yeah.
1: See, obviously, my my only knowledge of Batman is really the Michael Keaton, the Michael Keaton one way back when,
0: you know, Michael Keaton is coming back as Batman. Isn't he kind of old? Yeah. Well, so in the Flash movie that's coming out, because they they've they also the DC comics also do parallel universes thing. So he's going to be the Batman from a parallel universe. OK, which is the Batman from the original Batman movie. Michael Keaton is awesome. So that, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm in for that. Right. Okay. So that was the Batman. It was pretty good. Uh, I would recommend it. Uh, there was a bit of violence, though. Be careful. And an interesting use of the Ave Maria th- throughout it by, by a villain. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, it, the, it counterpoints with the villainy. It's,
1: it's kind of interesting. It was a good movie, though. It was, it was good. I'm wondering, at what point does that trope become kind of overdone? Yeah, like well, beautiful classical music counterpointing with like horrible, awful things. It,
0: it had something to do with the fact that there was an a orphan's choir involved in the history. So at of least they,
1: they wrote it into the story. It was an,
0: it was part of the story. Right. At, when the first time I heard it, I'm like, oh, they're doing this again. Do you guys not know what the Ave Maria is? Uh-huh. But then it it kind of made sense when you went on. So uh, let's talk about the, the season
1: finale for The Mandalorian. Yes. Loved it. It was good. They they stuck the landing? I totally did. Um, I was a little bit like the penultimate episode. I was a little bit worried how they were going to write their way out of the corner. Not, I mean, I had faith. But yes. But I was, I was curious, like, I don't see where this is going to go. And it, it was fine. It was great. Um, it had a really satisfactory story arc ending. Huge contrast with the Bad Batch, which had a very unsatisfactory story arc ending. <laughs> In fact, it didn't end. So right. um I felt like we came to a really good stopping it, stopping point. It
0: could have been a series finale at that point. There's a few loose ends. But right. the way they that if, if they if finished was, the series. Right. If there the was season? not
1: another season, it it could feel like this was a complete story from beginning to end, three seasons, boom, boom, boom. We, we We have a satisfactory resolution to the right. main problem right of the show, yes however there's there's more. I mean, we still have a lot of grogu's backstory that we don't have. I mean, we have enough that I think that it's enough to feel like they haven't neglected it, but there are more questions. there are I many have.
0: more questions many more questions yeah
1: um i I loved what they did with the Mandalorians and mantle the people, the people. Um, I. Yeah, the, I mean the, the battle was the the final finale battle. You've got to have a final finale battle. So this is not really going have a big spoilery.
0: action set piece. Yeah, um, it Star was Wars. good.
1: It was very satisfactory. Yeah, and what I really one of the things I really liked about the last few episodes of The Mandalorian is what they've done with Grogu, and his growth as a character. He's this, not
0: just the cute prop to make money for off of toys. Right.
1: This is a character who has had growth he, he's gained in agency and ability and he is now no longer simply a MacGuffin that's being knocked around but he is a, a person a, a child and who is able to fight alongside his adoptive father and I really think that it's a solid entry in the Star Wars fathers and sons theme Yes. Star Wars is not so great on mothers and daughters, but fathers and sons, it's really a Star Wars theme. And I think the Mandalorian is a solid entry into the st- fathers and sons.
0: Now, if I were to say anything about anything, not negative, but just not, Criti- like, critical, cri- cri- yeah, critical, critical. It's not even all that critical about the finale. It's that it didn't after after the, the penultimate episode, after the episode before that, there was all kinds of speculation among fans of all these machinations. And that final episode ignored all of that. Like It didn't have any of it. It was it was much more straightforward. It was much,
1: you know, I, I was glad because yeah. a lot of the fan theories that were going off on all sorts of crazy directions would have been very unsatisfactory. It would have decided to go that way, had
0: unsatisfactory things to certain characters, especially yeah. if, if the theories uh, were right.
1: I, I liked what they did with all the characters.
0: They even resolved something concerning a particular MacGuffin that I think sets things up better for the future. A lot of fans are like, no, not that. But I think in the, in the long run, it's better for the Mandalorians and just in general for the story. Okay.
1: Yes, I agree. I also wanted to add, and this is maybe a little spoilery, but not too much. Like it's not spoiling a major plot point, Mm -hmm. but what they did with Grogu and having an assistive communication device so that he is able to push a button and get it to say yes and no was really awesome. Uh, And I think sort of awesome in a way that is perhaps even greater than the creator's Might have thought I have a couple of friends who've got children who are nonverbal, you know, older kids.
0: Right. Profoundly disabled.
1: Right. Who need communication devices in order to communicate and they push communicate by pushing buttons and having a machine speak for them.
0: Think Stephen Hawking.
1: Yes. And I really love the fact that Grogu, who has been a nonverbal character, he makes cute noises, but he does not talk. Finally gets a voice. It's Only two words, yes and no, but he does a lot with those two words. (laughs) And that, I was thinking, you know, for all the kids who are nonverbal, who are communicating with assistive communication devices, and their classmates who are really maybe not sure what to do with that, here is finally a supercharged, superhero, warrior Jedi character who is a kid like them who uses buttons to communicate Mm. and that's really cool Yeah, grogu
0: is uh, his species ages very slowly he's 50 years old but he's essentially a toddler but we we were speculating that even as a toddler he he should be talking and then maybe it's the trauma of order 66
1: i think it's interesting because his character goes back and forth it's really hard to pin an age on him yeah there are times when he acts like a baby like a very small baby. Uh-huh. But there are times when he acts like a much older child, more like a four or five year old. And so it's really hard to pin out like he, his, obviously his development is not a sort of asynchronous when you compare it to human children. Right. Or this is my, you know, like you said, my favorite, one of my favorite theories is that perhaps Grogu is nonverbal because he has selective mutism because he could talk, but he won't or can't because of his trauma.
0: The like, trauma of the past maybe develop- 30 years. Right? Maybe
1: developmentally, he should be able to talk. If he had grown up in a nice, loving family, supportive and not been ripped away from everything and watched hundreds of Jedi like dying before his eyes, maybe he would be much more developed and advanced. I mean, the fact that Luke trains him and that he's able to do the jedi training at that level suggests to me that yeah he's he's older than he sometimes appears i mean
0: think of if a if a 4 year old had 50 years of experience just life experience but still developmentally 4 or 5 he still he would act at times act based on that experience beyond the development
1: right so i think it's an inter- he's an interesting character like is a child but not exactly a child. Yes. So
0: now we have to wait for 2 years or whatever ridiculously mm. long time to have another Mandalorian season. I know. Luckily, uh, Ahsoka is next and then Andor next year and we'll go from there. I'm
1: really looking forward to Ahsoka.
0: Yeah, me too. If we didn't have Ahsoka on the schedule, I'd be kind of I'd be more bummed out than I am. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: So um, kudos to Disney for queuing up. Yes. Queuing Good up, job. Queuing up shows.
0: Good job multi-billion dollar company. <laughs> you can have my money. So, uh we also started watching a new season of a BBC. Not actually, not BBC. It's actually an ITV. It's on BritBox, a British TV series called Grace. It's a detective series starring John Sim. Doctor Who fans will remember him as the uh, the the Master from the David Tennant time, and he's a detective. I I can never remember the uh, the ranks of the various. Detectives and cops in British. He's a detective. Work. He's the chief detective of a of an investigative unit in Brighton, which is a seaside, touristy kind of area in southern England. And he, the character himself, has he his wife disappeared some years ago. I forget how long, like ten years. It's been a long time. Some some time, some years ago, and. You know, investigated, kind of destroyed him a bit. You know, here he is as the great detective who can't find his own wife. And did she leave? Was she taken? You know, and he has no closure, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the first two seasons. Now, the third season's come. He's he's moved on. He has a a new girlfriend, and he's... Basically, we as where we ended last season, he was ready to have her legally, his first wife, his wife legally declared dead. And so he can move on. Right. Um, and then something happens to cast doubt on everything. I won't spoil all that. But the seasons are basically three episodes of each individual mysteries, murder mysteries or other crime, criminal mysteries. This wasn't so right. much a murder mystery with this one, but um, I mean, there was a murder, but it, the the crime was more of a uh, assault, right? Crime. Um, so, I really like this series. There's something about it that, like, I like British cop shows in general, right? Uh, but the one thing I really like about the series is I, you know, you know me. I I usually can pick out who done it pretty early in most cop shows, right? And they keep me guessing.
1: They're really good at having multiple suspects and it's really hard to pinpoint like a lot of cop shows will have like the guy who you're supposed to suspect and then the guy who really did it
0: yeah and and i can usually pick out just from narrative structure alone when the guy who did it shows up on screen right i did that a few weeks ago in the rookie like as soon as the guy was on screen i'm like oh he did it
1: right (laughs) and with grace It's really hard, much harder to guess. I don't think it's this guy, but I'm really not sure. And maybe it is this guy, although maybe not. Yes. And it's really. It's better written. And I don't think we suspected the guy who actually did it at all. I mean, there was a
0: moment when he was among the vast monopoly of suspects. Mm -hmm. Like he was one. That guy was one. That guy was, you know, I mean, he was there, but he never was my prime suspect. No. Um. What was the other thing I was going to say about it? It's it's also that um, oh shoot uh, anyway the, this yeah so it kind of oh I remember they also seed clues throughout it like there was there was this one clue
1: but you didn't have enough information to tell that it was wh- wh- you what? you knew that it was a clue but the, you didn't have enough information to connect it y. to yeah. to connect it to the perp
0: right. But there was this one element that kept showing up, and if you are paying attention, you you could see that this element kept showing yeah, up. You
1: did catch it before the detective did. I, I'll, I'll I, give you that.
0: Well, honestly, I caught it in the first five minutes. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, I really enjoy Grace. It's, I I enjoy the character. John Simp's character is 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 a really interesting character. I, I enjoy the other characters there's been some interesting growth in some of the secondary characters like that that other cop who's was a bit of a misogynist the previous seasons Uh Uh-huh. um who is who's, who kind of is just a he doesn't care what people think about him sort of guy he's more of a what's the other instead of misogynist it's a misandrist like a misanthrope he's he's more of a misanthrope now um but in any case, he's kind of evolved a bit. And I, I kind of like it. It's kind of interesting. So plus I like
1: seeing different parts of England. Right. This is one set in Brighton.
0: Yeah. It's it's interesting, these different areas. I mean, it's funny when you watch TV, and I, I bet it's the same for, for British people watching t- so much American TV. Like, you know, oh, that's, you know, this is what New York looks like. This is what LA looks like. Texas, you know, you get these ideas of these different places. Well... Between watching Doctor Who and now watching all these BritBox shows, I'm getting a better appreciation for the topography and geography of of uh, Britain. So I enjoy it. Uh, BritBox has a app has a lot, leaves a lot to be desired. I'll just say that. Right. P- Jimmy was saying Jimmy Aiken was saying with a Doctor Who, um, he just subscribes to BritBox through Amazon and watches it in the Amazon interface, and he has no problems.
1: Yeah. When I've watched through Amazon, the interface has been. Can we watch good. using our subscription through Amazon? I don't think so. I think you have to. Yeah, you have to I think it's a
0: separate subscription. You have
1: subscription. to subscribe through Amazon. That's what I'm I not, thought.
0: Maybe you should maybe I should try that. Cancel one and do it somewhere else. Um, so, so that's what we've been watching. Oh, you had one other thing. You had a YouTube video you wanted to talk about.
1: I did. Um, yeah. When I was pondering, what did I watch? I'm thinking, Week and Weary. Did I watch anything? Pondering Week and Weary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I ended up went to go watch a movie and then got sucked into YouTube. But uh, this was a really good uh, discussion between the poet Dana Joya, who I've enjoyed his work for a long time. Did you enjoy um, his work? Ha ha. Uh, he was former U.S. poet laureate. Mm-hmm. And um, this was a conversation with the graphic artist Makoto Fujimura, whose work I am not familiar with. Um, but he's the two of them. But evidently he worked with Dana Joyo when Dana was the poet laureate. Mm-hmm. Makoto Fujimura was some sort of artist in residence or something okay. in D.C. Anyway, so the the topic, the title of the topic, the title of their conversation was Can Beauty Save the World? Um, and it was definitely, evidently at this private academy in Nashville. I don't really feel like that was a good title because I would have said that the title, the, the subject was something more like art and trauma. Less catchy. Less catchy? <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. My favorite part of the talk was when, Mako Fujimura talks about the Japanese art of kintsugi. And if you don't know this, kintsugi is the art of repairing broken ceramics, broken pottery. And the artist takes the pieces and glues them back together with lacquer and then fills the cracks with gold. And the piece, when it's been... Repaired in this way is more valuable than the original piece, and it's a way to preserve those treasured heirlooms. But it's also a very particularly Japanese aesthetic, where there's there's especially appreciation of beauty in fragility, in the death and destruction, like the falling blossoms as they're dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I've been fascinated with kintsugi for a while. But this is the first time I've heard a Japanese Christian artist talk about Kintsugi from a Christian perspective. And this was what was really interesting to me because Maku Fujimura likened Kintsugi and the beauty of the brokenness of the piece to the wounds of the resurrected body of Jesus. And this blew my mind because the beauty of, Is in the wounds, and the wounds make him more beautiful than he was before because of what they represent. They represent his death, his sacrifice, our redemption is in those wounds.
0: Well, it's very similar to, say, um, a mother's stretch marks and C section scars. Right. It makes you more beautiful because of what it represents.
1: He also said in something I hadn't heard before that an essential part of the process of Kintsugi is that before the repair begins is beholding. The beholding precedes the repair and the healing. We must behold and contemplate the brokenness. And I really liked that. I mean, it kind of goes in with that Christian theme of the ecce homo, the behold the man. And that image of Jesus, the ecce homo, is... The Jesus crowned with thorns, wrapped in the purple robe with the blood and the sweat pouring down his face. He is the beaten and wounded savior. Uh, so I really, really liked that. Um, a lot of the rest of the talk, Mako Fujimura talked about being a survivor of 9-11 and living in the area in New York after the bombing. He was trapped in the subway when the buildings fell. Underneath. Underneath. Oh, well. And so he talked about being a survivor and, and experiencing that trauma and walking through the ruins on his way to work every day and seeing the beauty in the ruins and trying to capture that in his art. And that was really like, there's a whole lot about how art is how we heal from trauma, that that process of making art and contemplating our wounds transforms that which is too horrible and too traumatic to consider, to think about, into something that we can contemplate, that, mm. that beauty makes, it, makes us able to process and, and to deal with those traumas. And this fed into a lot of uh, discussions I'd been having about like healing from trauma and burnout with some friends. So it really is just really beautiful to me. Yeah, it makes me think
0: of like Steven Spielberg making Schindler's List as a way of processing the horror of the Holocaust, there's a I mean, what the movie depicts is horrific, but there's a beauty in the way he tenderly depicts the the, the people, the victims of right. oppression.
1: Right. Art. That's what art does is it takes the horrible and it makes it beautiful, not in a way that denies the horror or the ugliness, but it transforms it. It redeems it. It. It uplifts us, and it gives us a narrative to be able to hold that as something that we can hold
0: by his very nature. the world, the universe, everything in it was is is created by God, and thus holds his fingerprint and so even in the most horrific things, God is present even in the darkest corners, even in the depths of of darkness of of evil. There's still the Holy Spirit is present, that God is present. His fingerprint is there, not as part of the evil, but coexisting with it. Like God is everywhere because God is omnipresent and omniscient. And so even in the darkness, even in the bad, there is
1: always something there of God. Well, and, and that's why Jesus becomes man. It's why he dies on the cross. It's why he's buried in the tomb so that there is nowhere we can be. I mean, why he descends to hell. There is nowhere we can be, even in the most horrible suffering, even in the tomb, even dead, even in hell, where God can't reach us because mm-hmm. he has been there. Right. Um. The, the one other thing that I wanted to point out from this, with this talk that really struck me was he said that art, the fundamental, the most fundamental question that art asks is, why live?
0: Hmm.
1: Why, why get live? Why go on? I mean, especially in those hard moments. And he said that the civilizations, our civilizations are built as an answer to that question. Why live? We we create beauty. We create houses and the things that we need to live in as a response to that question: Why live? Mm. I really, really recommend this. Um, it was it was a great talk. Interesting.
0: Uh, lots to think about there. Um, lots to to dive into. Right. So. Uh, those are the things we've been watching. Let's talk about some things we've been reading. I finished another book. Speaking of uh, okay. horrible things, this was a book about, the book itself was really good, but uh, the, the thing it was about was bad, which is, um, the book is called An Army at Dawn. It's by Rick Atkinson, and it's a history book about the war in North Africa, 1942 to 1943. I've, You know, I'm in my 50s. I'm a man in my 50s. It means that uh, when I turned 45, I was issued my set of history books to read. (laughs) Because that seems to be a thing that men in their 40s and 50s do as we read history books about war. But uh, I've actually always, ever since I was a teenager, been interested in reading about World War II as a fascinating subject. A lot, most of it was on the Pacific Theater, frankly, uh, a lot of my reading, because my dad was in the Navy and I was more interested in Navy stuff and that the Navy was more involved in that one. But uh, lately, I've been Bella, our daughter Bella, has been interested in has been taking classes and has been interested in reading some World War II stuff, especially about the European theater. And so I picked up this book. I've read previously a Revolutionary War book by Rick Atkinson. Um, This is an older book, came out in two thousand three. It won the Pulitzer Prize uh, in two thousand three when it came out, and uh, actually came out in two thousand two, but it won the two thousand three Pulitzer. And um, it's a part of a trilogy. But this first book takes place, it covers the campaign in North Africa, a period of the war, which I knew very little about. I'd heard of the Battle of the Khazarine and El Alamein, and that's about it. I didn't really know anything about the war in North Africa, which is a shocking omission because, and it, partly because I wasn't taught it in school. The war in North Africa was a, a meat grinder, it was, but it was also where the U.S. Army learned how to fight modern war. We did terribly in that, in that campaign at first. That's probably
1: why we don't hear about it.
0: Right. I mean, the, the fact is, is the, the only if we had tried to invade Europe, if we'd done D-Day in 1942 instead of in 1944, it would have been a disaster. Like, we went up against the French and then the Italians and the Germans um, in North Africa instead of going right into the teeth of the German army in, in, in Europe. So it would have been a disaster if we'd done it. We, Our our armies learned a lot very quickly um, at a high cost. So it was a really good book, really well written. Atkinson has a real way with words. We were t- talking about some of the quotes. This really struck struck us. Um, one of the things that struck me about this was reading how Eisenhower and all these generals that I've heard about for years, Patton, uh, Omar Bradley, like, they were all my age. <laughs> like, they're all, they're supposed to be old. Like, I'm not old. I, I'm not old enough to be leading Supreme Allied Commander over the armies fighting in World War Two. Uh-huh. Yeah. Man, that made me feel old. There was some, also some really cool stories, anecdotes. One was the story of this ship called the SS Contessa. So when they were sending the fleet over from, Uh, Norfolk, Virginia, you know, loading up all of our divisions to head over there to for the invasion. The War Department had been looking for a shallow draft ship capable of navigating a dozen miles up a serpentine Moroccan river to this particular airfield, which is one of their prime objectives on the uh, in the uh, landing on the invasion. And a worldwide search had turned up the SS Contessa, a salt caked, rustine scow that drew just over 17 feet and had spent most of her undistinguished career hauling bananas and coconuts from the Caribbean. Which is a great <laughs> description. She was Shanghai. She was ordered to Newport News. They were um, the thick browed Briton with an untinted mustache and a long, saggy face, Captain William H. John was told he was loading more than a 1,000 tons of bombs, steps, charges, and high-acting aviation uh, fuel, and the crew promptly jumped ship. (laughs) So they went to the Norfolk jail, where there were a bunch of sailors in jail, merchant marine sailors, and gave them a choice of getting out of jail and going on board the ship or staying in jail. So he had a crew full of convicts. Hmm. And as well as a a bunch of um, Navy and Marines uh, aboard and um, yeah the the Navy Guards with riot guns escorted them to the Contessa and that's what they. I mean it's this great story like the whole story of, of what would make a great movie I, I remember I talked about it in Six Frigates there was a the whole story of the uh, the assault on Tripoli and the burning of the Philadelphia and all this how what a great movie that would be this is another one that'd be a great movie. Hollywood stop remaking everything and make some new movies these would be great movies Um, but there are some great quotes. Isabella was reading at the same time I was, and she kept highlighting things in there with me. Um, there was a, let's see, there there was a good one Uh, uh, on the trip over the galleys served so much fatty mutton that derisive bleeding could be heard bleating (laughs) could be heard throughout the convoy. And the 13th armored regiment proposed a new battle cry. "Bah."
1: So they didn't like the mutton. Fatty mutton. No. Um, I don't blame them. Ooh, when mutton is really when yes. fatty. Ugh. When, they,
0: um, when they tried to assault on two of the Moroccan ports the French were holding, they went badly and the the ships, the destroyers that went in were sunk. And so the French, with break, breathtaking cheek, billed the Allies for pilotage fees, citing a local law requiring payment from every vessel entering the harbor. <laughs> That is cheek. I mean, there's some great stories. Teddy Roosevelt Jr. was a general in leading in in it. Um, There was a really great quote. um, There's so many good quotes, but I'm not going to go through it. I've got a page full of great quotations from it. But um, there was, yeah, anyway. (laughs) There was was actually, I mean, there's two things. There's an Evelyn Waugh quote because he was there. Evelyn Waugh is a great Catholic writer. Um, is Captain- yes, and funny. Yes, um, the Stuka was a German fighter plane that was that was the primary fighter craft in uh, North Africa at the time. Captain Evelyn Waugh of the British Army wrote of the Stuka: "Like all things German, it is very efficient and goes on much too long." <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a good one, and then at one point Eisenhower and his aide, uh, or this other general Truscott, they they had stopped at this Roman ruins, and it says they studied an inscription chiseled between two columns in the Great Forum: "Venari lavari luderi rideri hawk est vivere, to hunt, to bathe, to play, to laugh, that is to live." which I think is the original Live, Laugh, Love. (laughs) Probably, yeah.
1: It's more interesting.
0: And then Atkinson writes, it was also true that to err, to fret, to grieve and to learn, that too was to live. He was making the point that that's what Eisenhower and the Americans went through in North Africa. Really good book. I really recommend it. I'm looking forward to reading the next two uh, um, parts of the trilogy. The next one is about the campaign in Italy. And then finally, the final push from D-Day through to the end of the war. Uh, that's called An Army at Dawn by Rick Atkinson. That's, cool. All right. So
1: you had a couple books you finished? I did. Uh, first one was called The Stone Book Quartet by Alan Garner. Um, and it's actually like this title suggests a quartet of short nove- novellas, I guess. Okay. Um, I mean, the whole book is like, uh, Less than 200 pages, like 170 pages. And that's divided into four stories. Um, they're, and the first, the first book is called The Stone Book. Um, and then Granny Reardon, The Amergate, and Tom Fobles Day. It was originally published in 1978. And it's kind of an interesting, hard to pin down book. Uh, basically, it follows a family through multi generations. Um, I think the original, the first book, the stone book, is maybe in the Victorian era. They've got trains, but it's pretty, like, not high tech. Um, and then the last story, uh, Tom Fobbles Day, takes place during World War II. Um, and it follows four children in the same family. Uh the the first child is the mother of I think the next child um who is the father or grandfather of the next child and then like so it skips generations. by generations. But yeah, yeah it's, it's so it's generations. So each story is self-contained, but then has references to the previous St- stories mm-hmm. um so in the first story the father is a stonecutter um and then in the second story the the grandson finds the stonecutter's initials and that's like a moment of epiphany in the story which is kind of it's kind of beautiful because it it's it's sort of about this oral history of the family that it, it, all the stories in the book are based on his The oral histories of his own family that he overheard as a child sitting Mm -hmm. under the table listening to his relatives talk. And so these are his stories and they're very rooted in the particular place, uh, I think Cheshire, England. And they're very full of dialect, really full of like very local Cheshire dialect. Mm -hmm. And so there's at times when it's a little bit difficult to read just because there's a lot of dialect words that you're not quite sure what they mean. But it's really lyrical. It's very beautiful. There's a lot about craft in it. Like the first, the grandfather is, um, in the first story, is a stonemason. In the last story, the grandfather is a smith. And so there's these children watching this world of adults crafting and working. And there's sort of a celebration of that beauty and that craftsmanship and in a way the whole book is sort of his response to that as somebody who is a crafter of words looking back at himself and placing himself into the narrative of i am from a family of craftsmen it's just that my craft is words not stone or or metal mm-hmm. um and so it's just this beautiful celebration of you know life in a small english village through multiple generations I really liked it a lot. It's all cool. gorgeous. And I'm going to have to read it about 10 more times in order to really <laughs> plumb its depths. Uh, and then the other book came this week is a brand new just published book. Um it's called Reynard's Tale by Ben Hatkey. And you might know Ben Hatke. He writes a lot of kids books and graphic novels like Zeta the Space Girl and Mighty Jack. Um some beautiful picture books like Julia's House for lost creatures and nobody likes a goblin. Yes. Um this is not a children's book. It's an adult book, but it's illustrated. Um so Reynard is a fox and he is a fox who um is a romantic. He likes women, he goes on adventures. Uh he gets into trouble. He he's meets
0: an anthropomorphic fox.
1: Right, anthropomorphic fox. He wears like a big poetic hat and a cape and a sword. And he's very swashbuckling. Um, and there's mermaids, there's pirate winches, there's wizards, there's, uh, anthropomorphic crow, and he's being hunted by an anthropomorphic wolf. See, all the male creatures seem to be animals and all the females seem to be women, like humans. Anyway. Except for the mermaid. Well, yeah, the mermaids, I Actually guess. She's half. Top half or bottom half. Uh anyway, it's a it's a really lovely adventure story. It's um it's got a nice surprise ending when he finally gets home and what's waiting there. Um I really liked it a lot. It's just a short little book. It's beautifully illustrated. I mean Ben Hadkey's art is just wonderful and uh I'm really thrilled to have read it. It it was like sit down and read in like an hour. It's not a long book. Mm. Um, but nice. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it. Everybody should go out and support Ben Hackey, who's a great um, Catholic dad.
0: Yes. Artist.
1: Yep. Um. Oh. yeah.
0: So that's what we've been reading and watching. So let's talk about this week's
1: gospel. Um, one of my personal favorites. Yes. This is the road to MAS. Which actually. I grew up. My parents had a Catholic bookstore that they opened when I was in first grade. And I grew up there. They sold it when I was in grad school. So it was pretty much like my entire childhood and young adult. And I worked there and it was called Emmaus after this gospel Mm -hmm. story. So it is a it is it is a story which has been sort of interwoven through my entire life.
0: Could we perhaps call it the way to Emmaus? Yeah, this is the way. This is the way to Emmaus. So uh, our homilist this week was Father Leo from the... uh Holy Cross, Holy Cross Fathers. Thank you. <laughs> <Never> remember <laughs> Stonehill College, and he um, he started by talking about there are basically four different, three different resurrection appearances or places that we've had so far. That we've had so far: um, the garden, the upper room, and now the road to Emmaus.
1: He's he actually talked about Mary. Well, yeah, he talked about Mary Magdalene in the garden and the women finding the empty tomb. Then Peter. And John going to the empty tomb, then Mary Magdalene encountering Jesus again and thinking he's the gardener. Yep. And then the upper room. So there's right. two two gardens. Two places. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and then the road. So the garden, the upper room, the road. Right. Uh, where the greatest Bible study ever takes place.
1: <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Jesus. We're explained- not. Our hearts burning within us. <laughs>
0: Jesus explains all of the scriptures pertaining to himself. Really? Could I record? Can, can we
1: get a recording of that, please? <laughs> so yeah lucky cleopas and the other guy who isn't ever named yeah
0: yeah they don't write it down so father made a interesting couple of interesting points and he he talks about how the, the these disciples unknowingly tell jesus how much he failed <laughs> like because they say um are you uh, it was this Jesus the Nazarene, he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. But we were hoping he would be the one to redeem Israel, but didn't.
1: And then they killed him.
0: They, but they killed him. So, you know, he failed. And Father compared that to, like, you know, how often some of us today, we believe faith has failed us. We've been abandoned by God. Right. But the road to Emmaus can become a way of hope in life. If we enter into dialogue with Jesus, right? If if you feel like God has failed, God has failed you personally. If if your your faith is is bereft, enter into dialogue with with Jesus. Tell him, look, I if from where I'm standing, you failed me. Sh- show me how you haven't.
1: <laughs> Prove to me that you haven't, and he he will. Right. He, and he quoted um, from Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. He said that Emmaus represents every town. And the road that they're walking towards Emmaus is the road that every believer walks on. We are all at some point on the road to Emmaus. We're all feeling abandoned. And we all have the opportunity to encounter Jesus. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So Jesus quietly listened to them vent their disappointment in him as a failed Messiah. <laughs> Uh, Because they'd forgotten what Jesus had taught them about God's faithfulness.
1: Right. I mean, he had been pretty explicit about, I'm going to be, I'm going to be betrayed. I am going to be killed. I am going to rise up again. And this is all going to happen. But they didn't understand it. And it was hard to hold on to.
0: So he explained it to them. Again,
1: but I think it's really easy. I think for me, sometimes to be glib, like they didn't get it, but we know better. I know better. No, no. Like I don't. am, I am so superior and wise because I know what Jesus was talking about.
0: Just like I wouldn't doubt, like Thomas did. Yeah,
1: right. But but when we actually come to the hard times in our own lives, our own moments of crucifixion, we all have these moments when we have to relearn what Jesus' death and resurrection means for me, in my life, how I am dying with Jesus, how he's dying with me, and how I need the resurrection, right?
0: You know, it makes me think how interesting it is that the Gospels don't end with the resurrection. Like, that's the victory, right? If this were a movie, in fact, The Passion of the Christ,
1: (laughs) ended with the resurrection, resurrection,
0: because that's the cinematic denouement. That's the end. Boop, We're done, right? Right. But what happens after that is we get we get the Jackson's Lord of the Rings. We have multiple endings where we keep seeing the disciples glum,
1: given up, like having to keep being convinced. No, no, hiding, locked, locked into the upper room, right. scared to go out because <laughs> they're scared that they're going to be rounded up and
0: killed. They're next. The Thomas, the doubting Thomas, the the disciples on the road to Emmaus again and again. Peter, you know, even you know. Um, at the at the the seaside, you know where right.
1: even having having seen Jesus in the upper room, they're still like I don't know what to do. I'm just going to go back to Galilee and start fishing again, <laughs> right? Like really? And I mean, Jesus did tell them to go to Galilee, but like did. once, but once they get there, what do they do? Oh, I guess will go fishing.
0: oh I, I'll wait for the Lord to tell me what to do. <laughs> I'm just going to go back to what I know until He tells me otherwise. So He comes and tells them otherwise. But it's interesting how it's like the the, the gospels they have. Keep having these scenes after the resurrection, before the ascension of Jesus trying to, you know, build them up, build them up, build them up. Remember, this is what you
1: need. I I like the analogy with with Lord of the Rings and the scouring of the Shire, because a lot of people complain about how much time that takes, how much long an addendum after the the high point is the destruction of the ring, the crowning of the king. And we done, have this right? whole other story about like, which is another little mini rise and fall. It's got it's got it's 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 a whole other battle. After the bad guy has
0: been defeated, we go back to the Shire, which was our happy place that we started from that we left from in order to protect. And we get there and it's been wrecked. Yeah
1: it's it's kind of crushing and it's kind of long and you can understand why movie producers would want to just chop that part out and and yet
0: and that's a mistake and yet that's the gospel right because the resurrection isn't the end the resurrection is as churchill said in north africa it's not the it's not we're not at the end we're not even at the beginning of the end we're just at the end of the beginning
1: yeah and I mean, we're all kind of those, the disciples, we're all like the hobbits. We have to like go take that like awesome victory and then go fight all the other battles. Right.
0: Right. It's not, it won't be done until the final end, the end of the end
1: right. uh, when, when to, Jesus comes back. We have to take that victory and everything we learned from Jesus's victory and then like go apply it in our own lives, which is the hard part. Mm so
0: Father also talked about how this gospel is a microcosm of the mass. You know, we have the breaking the breaking open of the word. Right. And then we have the breaking of the bread. And uh as as we're we're told, and we've mentioned this before when we've talked about this, when as soon as he broke the bread and gave it to them, he vanished from their sight. Why? Because he was present in the in when he broke the bread and gave it to them. He was
1: present in the Eucharist. That's the Eucharist. Right. He's there. He, 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 I mean, he he visibly disappears, but he's not. He's still present. Gone. Right. That's the hard part for us. I mean, to to receive the Eucharist and like remember and keep in mind, it's really Jesus. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it's really Jesus. Right. I mean, I know intellectually, but like my mind wanders. I get distracted and I, I forget.
0: We're human. Yeah. I mean if we, if only we in fact I've I've heard it said by like non-Christians talking about like if if Catholics truly believed that this was the body blood soul and divinity of Jesus Christ they would crawl on their faces to the altar.
1: Right. I mean we we take it for granted. Yeah,
0: but Jesus doesn't ask us to do that. He asks no. us to, to to approach as friends and as brothers and sisters.
1: I mean he he sort of came into this world to be taken for granted, not not because that's how we should approach him, but knowing that that's what we would do and giving us the opportunity to fall and rise and fall and rise again and again, because he knows we're human. Like he doesn't expect mm-hmm. us to be super man all the time.
0: And by giving himself in the bread, in the Eucharist, in the, in the bread at this meal in Emmaus. He's giving the example. Give yourself totally to God. Give yourself totally for God. And that's really the final lesson of the road to Emmaus is all these things that I've taught you before, all these things I've now explained to you on the way here. The final thing I want to remind you of is give yourself totally. Give Mm -hmm. yourself completely.
1: You know, one moment where father started to tell a story and then kind of pulled back and he didn't tell the whole story but I was kind of intrigued as he said that this week he celebrated a wake and a funeral. Mm. And he said that he'd also like one of the story I think of, of either the guy whose wake it was or maybe it was the same person um had been baptized and was on his deathbed and had not lived as a catholic he was not practicing at all throughout his entire life, but he had been baptized and he decided at the end that he wanted a priest. And he talked about how like that relationship, Jesus has always been waiting for him. And and we may
0: forget Jesus, but Jesus doesn't forget us.
1: Right. And I really liked that, like as a, as a moment. And he talked about also how, like he, he never hears. He hears eulogies. lots of eulogies. He yeah. never hears eulogies talking about.
0: He hears eulogies about the homes people have owned, the travels they have taken, the the things they the, the the accomplishments of their life. He never hears the what have they done for other people? What when have they lifted others up? Which
1: actually, I I understand the point he's making. That has actually not been the case for me because yeah. I have definitely heard yeah. eulogies. That I'm sure he hears exactly many more that. eulogies. Than- Probably. Yeah. yeah. But like my but- grand, my grandmother's eulogy. I remember being incredibly touched. I was in college. Uh, this guy who I'd never met, you know, I didn't know who he was, but he, he knew my grandmother and he talked about all of the lives she touched. And through most of my life, she was a homebound, uh, you know, she was homebound. She was, she was sick she didn't seem to be very active in her community in any way. And yet he is giving this witness about all of the people who she had touched, the witness right. that she had given in her community. And that was really profound to me.
0: Right. Eulogies should really talk about how, how this person has loved. Right. I, I want to tell my, <laughs> our kids this. When you get to the point of giving a eulogy for me, talk about how I've loved. That's what uh, that's how I want to be remembered is. How well I have loved, if I have. That's right. uh, at least that's how I want to be remembered.
1: I mean, certainly that was the eulogy that we heard from your brother give for both of your parents. Yeah. Um, and I think my other grandmother, too, my, my dad sent me his notes. I wasn't able to go to her funeral, but my dad's notes were all about how my grandmother loved. Mm. That's that's the most important thing. Right.
0: So I think that's a good place to wrap it up this week. So before we go, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Raising the Bets, including Jolie G., Eric U, Sean K., Michael C., and David R. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give. Make it possible for us to continue raising the bets and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And that's it for this time. Find links from our discussion in our show notes at sqpn.com slash bets. That's B-E-T-T-S. Send your feedback at the StarQuest Facebook page, facebook.com slash StarQuest Media. Send us an email at bets at sqpn.com. Or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Write a review at Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with your friends to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. Until next time, I'm Dom Bettinelli.
1: And I'm Melanie Bettinelli.
0: Thank you for listening to Raising the Bets on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Doctor Who. Find the show wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Doctor Who.